Well, Merry Christmas, all you spooky people. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm pretty excited for Christmas this year. You know what? I am too. There's a lot of snow in Utah. Last year wasn't it wasn't as wet. It was pretty dry. I feel like. Yeah, agreed. This year so far has been much snowier, much better. I'm excited to get up into the mountains and go snowboarding. Me too. Me too. Uh, going along with the Christmas spirit, uh, I have the historical story today, and mine is related to Christmas time. Yes. It better be Holly about Jolly. Krampus. If it's not Krampus, I send it back. <laughs> <laughs> it, unfortunately, it's not. But this guy, this, this guy was a Krampus for sure, and you, you'll understand when you hear it. All right. So I'm excited to hear it. Awesome. What do you have for us today? So, I have three Reddit stories for you guys. This first one comes to you from r slash Backwoods Creepy. You know we love a good Backwoods Creepy story on the show. Mm-hmm. And this says, the reason I don't go outside at night. To set the scene, it was last Sunday, November 27th, and I'm walking through the woods to avoid interacting with guests like the average antisocial teenager I am. I have one of my uncle's dogs with me, Duke, a 150-pound Great Dane, as we're passing through the clearing. I state the size and breed of the dog to demonstrate how out of character his behavior will be. As we get about halfway through the clearing, he begins to walk slower and begins to whine. I assume he hurt his paw, so I check him over but find nothing. I turn around, and in my flashlight beam, I can see a pair of eyes about four feet off the ground, significantly taller than anything with eye shine in my area. I, understandably so, freak the hell out and start to back away. Then the most horrifying thing happens. It stands up. Whatever was watching me is now over six feet tall, and then it talked. It said, Help! With no emotion or cadence behind it, Duke is losing his mind trying to get away, and I decide that it's the reasonable plan. As we're running through the forest, trying to get back to our house, I can hear the creature saying, Help! 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 always within five seconds of each other. We mercifully make it back to the house and get inside. For the next few nights, if I looked out my window, I could still see those same eyes gazing into my soul from the woods. I don't know if it was a skinwalker, a wendigo, or whatever it was, but I hope I never see it again. Yeah, what was it? We don't know. It was Mm. just something that was about four feet tall, and then it stood up. And it just kept saying help over and over. But its eyes were glowing in the flashlight beams. I'm weirdly seeing a lot more like Wendigo, Chupacabra, Skinwalker-esque type movies uh, on TikTok. And they look legit. So these people are out here either like with doing some really good editing or we're finally, you know, they're finally coming out of the woodwork. (laughs) <laughs> I like that last part finally because you know I've been obsessed with cryptozoology like my whole life. Right. Always watching Bigfoot hunters and anything cryptid on Animal Planet. Um so yeah, finally seeing this stuff coming out is pretty cool. But I've seen way too many TikToks about Appalachia as they say it or Appalachia. Mhm. And about how it has a ton of 
uh, supposedly like creepy creatures in the woods over there. So, yeah, just interesting to see how many new things are coming out. I've also seen a lot that I could go off on this tangent on another day, but I've seen a lot of stuff about big people, like the tall people. And have you heard about them? No, I haven't. It's just like a species of humans that are now extinct, but they lived like the last one that died was like a hundred years ago, 200 years ago. Like Abraham Lincoln quotes them in one of his speeches. What? It's like, is that true? Yes, and I can show you the TikTok later that I saw it from. Yeah, I saw it on TikTok, I know. And then I keep seeing a bunch of TikToks of people showing, like, far out in the distance on the mountain, uh, like, these super tall people. What in the world? I don't know. Anyways. Are you sure it's not just, like, a creepy pasta edited Slenderman pic? Probably is. No, they're videos. They're not pictures. So, creepy. All right. Yeah, I'll look into that. And I forgot to mention that OP was U slash A underscore shoe on that last Backwoods Creepy Story. Now this next story comes to you from R slash Scary Stories, posted by 1000 Andonites, and it's titled Tommy. Ghosts aren't supposed to get old. Everyone knows they stay the same age they died for eternity, but not Tommy. He was killed when he was only three, his little body brutally crushed in a hit and run outside his home. He'd been standing on the pavement holding his mommy's hand when he was distracted by a sparrow on the road. Squirming out of Anna's clutch, he ran into the road. He was dead an instant later, and poor Anna, shocked and traumatized by what she had just witnessed, could barely remember the color of the car as it sped away. No one was ever brought to justice. Tommy was their only child. That's how the story goes. Anna and Mark, her husband and Tommy's father, had no more children, continuing to live quietly together in the same house, keeping themselves to themselves. And Tommy frolicked about on the street, sometimes on his red tricycle, sometimes kicking a red ball with Scooby-Doo on it. Everybody knew he was there, but what were they supposed to do about it? He seemed harmless enough, only wanting to be close to his home and parents. He never went inside. It was only after a couple of years that people realized that Tommy was getting older. Mary and a couple of the other neighbors tried to talk to Anna about it, but Anna looked blank, as if she hardly understood who Tommy was. The children on the street avoided playing outside Anna and Mark's house, not exactly scared of Tommy's ghost, but certainly creeped out by the growing child, who still restlessly pedaled his tricycle with legs growing far too long and kicked around the red Scooby-Doo ball. By the time Tommy would have been ten, it was a common sight on the street, a boy pedaling furiously on a tricycle, with his knees bent up to his ears, and Anna and Mark still did nothing. It was Mary, of course, who brought it up at a local meeting. She was Anna and Mark's next-door neighbor, with three kids of her own. Something has to be done. The boy is harmless for now, but he's growing bigger almost every day. How is this possible? Someone will get hurt. The others looked at her, upset and polite, but nothing was done. More years passed. Anna and Mark almost shockingly aged. By the time they were in their mid-thirties, they looked as if they were in their fifties. They had mostly cut off contact with their family, living quite alone. And Tommy was becoming a man, a young, handsome man, with a shock of bright hair and a fierce smile, pedaling around chasing sparrows on the stretch of road outside their house. Drivers who didn't know would break to a sharp stop right before him, jump out, only to see nothing. It would have been his 18th birthday. 
Anna stood on the pavement, the exact spot she had been standing so many years ago. One of Mary's kids came out and stood next to her. Together they watched Tommy kick his Scooby-Doo ball, a tall, lean young man on the cusp of life. He ignored them. Mary's kid turned to Anna. I saw you. You pushed him. And it was his dad's car. Anna gasped, but she had been waiting for this moment when someone would tell her what they had done out loud. Tommy stopped kicking the ball and looked at his mom. Fire burned in his eyes. The sunlight made it look like his hair was on fire. He smiled that fierce toddler smile, crooked on a young man. Anna shook her head. I couldn't. I couldn't be a mom. I hated every second. I wanted my own life back, and so did Mark. Tommy held out his hand to Anna, and she stepped on the street. The sudden squealing of brakes and her scream ripped through the calm street. This time, Mark didn't speed away. He came out of the car and looked down silently at his wife's broken body. And Tommy was nowhere to be seen. Yeah, that one's dark. Yeah. It makes me feel the ick. Sure. Ugh. But, like, also what a horrible thing to witness and experience. Yeah. She's like, screw this kid, man. Push him in the street. Years later, Tommy's like, screw you, mom. Take her in the street. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. That's a good one. Um, What what was that from again? R slash scary stories. Cool. That's a good subreddit. That's a good one. That's where I find most of my stories, too. Same. All right, you guys. I have one more story for you, also from r slash scary stories, posted by Miller Willer. It's called, The Things Living in My House Are Not My Real Family. The things living in my house are not my real family. They look and sound like them, but I'm sure they're not. I know it sounds crazy, but hear me out. It all started a few weeks ago. I awoke from a deep sleep to my mom standing over my bed with a hot stack of fresh pancakes. Happy Sweet Sixteen was written in blue icing on top. Happy birthday, Jonathan. I figured I'd make something a little extra sweet for you on your special day, Mom said. I was bewildered. First of all, it wasn't my birthday. I celebrated my birthday two months back. I'm a Virgo, and it was well into Libra season. Secondly, I hate pancakes with a passion. Is this a joke? I said. Mom, you know my birthday was a few months ago. She stared blankly at me for a moment, as if she were looking through me. Then she broke out into a loud, uncharacteristic cackle. That's a good one, honey, she said. I'm your mother. I birthed you. I think I would remember what day that was. She set the pancakes on my bedside dresser and left my room. At first, I was worried she had suffered a stroke or some kind of weird state. But over the next couple of weeks, there were more weird incidences. Some were benign enough like my unathletic father insisting he was a marathon runner, my unartistic mom transforming our guest room into an art studio, or my sister repeatedly calling the dog the wrong name. Other incidents were more serious, like when my father, who insists that pepperoni is the only acceptable pizza topping, ordered pineapple instead. I stopped trying to correct them because the same thing happened every time. They gave me a strange, empty look for a second, then a chuckle, A pat on the head and an insistence that I was mistaken. It started to take its toll on me as I grew increasingly wary of my family. I'm a naturally skeptical person, so I figured there had to be some sort of explanation I could find on the internet. Then, in an obscure medical journal, 
I stumbled on the entry for Cabgrass Syndrome, a condition where the subject believes those around them have been body snatched and replaced. Bingo. Ironically, this set me at ease. Sure, I might be nuts, but at least there was some sort of explanation. That was until things got even weirder. A rash appeared on my foot that I couldn't sate with ointment, and I discovered little pinpricks inside my armpits. Sometimes I would awake with my body red and hot all over, almost like an excruciating sunburn that I could feel deep in my bones. After these incidences, I would awake confused and less familiar with my surroundings. My bookcase was in the wrong place, my clothes had been replaced, and my family's behavior was nearly unrecognizable. These tiny mutilations continued until I awoke one morning from another dreamless sleep to find a cut behind my ear. It wasn't some tiny scratch, but an incision that had been sutured. I could feel a small piece of metal or something just under the skin. I finally had enough. I couldn't explain away any of this by blaming my head. I was certain imposters had taken over my home, and I wouldn't let them get away with it. I set up a series of cameras around my house to capture the activity going on the next night. I nervously succumbed to the light sleep, but I was awoken by a loud thud on the roof hours later. I scrambled to my computer to check the surveillance equipment. I toggled through the cameras in, e in each room of our large house until I came upon my sister. She stood stock still in the kitchen, eyes glazed over like she was in a trance. I could barely make out a shadowy figure in the corner of the screen before it, before it hurried into the next room. Then I switched to the hallway monitors. My father was talking to something off camera. My blood ran cold as a pale, spinely creature stepped into view. It had its back to the camera, but I could make out two tentacles for arms and two legs which seemed impossibly slender. They were smooth, head to toe, with few identifiable features, almost like Gumby, but with a large, bulbous head. Its legs did not bend, so its gait was uneven and clumsy as it shuffled toward my father. Its tentacles glowed as he raised it to my father's forehead. Moments later, my father went into glassy-eyed trance, just like my sister. I toggled to the main bedroom to find another one of the creatures doing the same thing to my mother laying in bed. I panicked and leaped up from the computer, hell-bent on jumping out of my window and making a break for it. However, as I turned, I was faced with one of the creatures looming over me. The creature had large, black eyes that took up almost all of its face and a small, thin-lipped mouth. I wasn't scared as it raised its glowing tentacle to my forehead. Instead, I felt a warm light envelop me before everything went black. I awoke in a pristinely white room strapped to a metal table. Sharp instruments were on the tables to my left and right. My head was viciously pounding as I tugged desperately against the strap securing my arms and legs. The air smelled vaguely of ammonia and sweat, but not exactly. I just couldn't place it, but this place seemed familiar. The door directly in front of me opened, and three of the creatures shambled in silently. "'What do you want with me?' I screamed. "'Please, just kill me. I don't want to suffer. I know you're intelligent beings. Can't you see I'm just like you?' The beings looked at one another quizzically. Then, finally, the one in the center approached the table, reached out with its tentacle, and stroked my head. "'Of course we do, honey,' the creature said in my mother's voice. "'How did you do that?' I stammered. You sound just like her. Oh dear, she chuckled. You really did get fried, didn't you? The other two approached the table on either side. 
You see, one said in my sister's voice, we don't sound like your family. We are your family, the other said in my father's voice. Suddenly, they shapeshifted into perfect replications of my family. I stared, mouth agape, in shock. I told you we erased his mind too much, my newly transformed sister said. You'd better hope the backup memories work. I'm confident they will, Dad said. You've been through a lot, but it's almost over. So now relax while we reboot your real memories. They stuck a needle in my arm, and all of my memories came flooding back to me. My true form is not that of a human, but a noble race of creatures cast away from their homeland in exile. They sent me to access the viability of Earth as a new home for our pilgrims. My job was to dispose of and take the place of the household's most trusted family member. In this case, it was poor Jonathan. Once in place, I acted as an unwitting antenna, collecting data for my family who monitored the situation in the skies above. This process was repeated across Earth with hundreds of families until every pilgrim had a home. Shapeshifting is easy, but I'm no actor, so to sell the ruse, we harvested Jonathan's memories and imported them into my consciousness. Naturally, this required the wiping of my real memory first. Admittedly, it's a shoddy process that degrades over time and requires frequent re-examinations and surgeries to maintain, hence the restless nights. Everything seemed unfamiliar to me because it was. I was the imposter, a stranger living out of place in a human family acting perfectly normal. Mother, father, sister, I whispered with tears in my eyes. I missed you so much. As we did you, father said, smiling in his human form. Through your work, we are ready to inhabit the earth together as a family. We descended once again to the planet that we would now call home. It felt good to lie in my comfy bed and close my eyes, knowing I'd wake up to my real family again in the morning. So, aliens, right? They're real. They're among us. <laughs> we are the aliens. How'd you kids? That was good. I like that story because it was... Uh, it's like, ah, oh, they had, they abducted him. It's like, okay, no, they brainwashed this this dude. No, no, no. He was the alien the whole time. He was spying on them. <laughs> <laughs> Good story. Good story. Okay. Are you ready for my, my Christmas story? Dude, I'm so ready. Let's do it. My holly jolly Christmas story. Okay. Uh, before I get started, just want to remind everyone that any pictures that we post for our episodes, including this one, we will post those images on our Instagram, so you can go check those out there. And also, if you have any stories that you would like um, us to read on the podcast, you are more than welcome to send those in to us. You can email them to us at SpookySuitPodcast801 at gmail.com, or you can DM those to us on our Instagram, SpookySuitPodcast. I titled this one, The Christmas from Hell. Like it. Because it really is. So with Christmas coming up, I wanted to share a Christmas-themed story. And there are a lot of stories that occur on this joyous of days, but one stood out among the rest, and that is the story behind the Ronald Gene Simmons murder spree. Okay, I'm hooked already. <laughs> I love anything dark Christmas. Perfect. Just a quick background on Ronald. He was born to Loretta and William Simmons on July 15, 1940. When Ronald was three years old, his father died suddenly due to a stroke. It didn't take long for his mother to remarry within the exact same year. Ronald's new stepdad 
was William D. Griffin. Ironic that she married two Williams. Um, I don't know if she had a thing for Williams or not, but I thought that was kind of funny to mention. Uh, so his new stepdad, William Griffin, was a civil engineer for the U.S. Army, and due to his position, they moved around a lot, but mostly stayed in the Arkansas area. Ronald felt like he was a little too smart for the school system, so when he was 17, he dropped out of high school and joined the U.S. Navy. His first assignment was at the Naval Station Bremerton in the state of Washington. That is the place where he would meet his future sweetheart, Becky Ulibari. I don't know how to say that last name. Ulibari. I think that's what it is. Sounds like a really good foreign food from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> try it once. Sure. The two quickly fell in love and married in July of 1960. Eventually, Ronald left the Navy and joined the U.S. Air Force, and that is the branch he would retire with in 1979. During his military service, he was awarded the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross, a Bronze Star Medal, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Marksmanship. Which, keep in mind, marksmanship. After retiring, he pretty much worked any job he could get to pay the bills. One of them being an accounts receivable clerk at Woodland Motor Freight, and another at a Sinclair Mini Mart as a store clerk. So they're just kind of like miscellaneous jobs. Just anything he can to really, once again, pay the bills. However, there were numerous reports of Ronald making sexual advances on his female co-workers, so to avoid any type of conflict, he would quit the job, move on to the next one, where he would be accused again of inappropriate behavior and just happened again and again. A little pervy-worthy. So, what was Ronald really like? Well, I can tell you that he was not a good guy or someone people wanted to hang out with. He was a mean, old, grumpy Grinch that always had a beer can in his hand, and honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if his catchphrase was, ah, humbug. A friend of his children stated later on that he always hid away in this, like, secret room they had at his house. A secret room in his house. Yeah, so I couldn't find much detail about this room, but except that it was always dark in there, and it always smelled weird. Red flag. Yeah. Um, they never explained what he did in there. So I like I'm, I really want to know, but I'm I don't sure know if I want to know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good <laughs> I point. mean, I do, but I don't. Right. Good point. So Ronald and Becky had seven wonderful children, three boys and four girls. So there was Ronald Jr. They also named uh, his nickname was Gene. Um, Sheila, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, Rebecca and Billy. There was something strange to the Simmons neighbors and friends. Ronald and his oldest daughter, Sheila, were always a little too close. Red flag. Oh, yeah. In the mornings, Ronald would walk his kids to the bus stop to make sure they didn't miss it, and he would hug them all goodbye. And then when it got to Sheila's turn for her hug, it would turn into just, it would turn into a kiss. But it wouldn't be like a kiss, like on the forehead or on the cheek. It would be like, like a five-second make-out session. Ew. And <laughs> I want to throw up. I think I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. Yeah, it's pretty gross. And people, like, he wouldn't really hide it. And so, like, Sheila's friends would see it. Other parents there would see it. And it was just very inappropriate and disgusting. Disgusting. 
So, of course, that led to Ronald abusing Sheila. And because of this, she was young, like she was young and she didn't know what to do. She knew it was wrong, but she didn't know who to turn to as well. Because uh, also, like, I tried to figure out, like, I'm like, what's Becky doing this whole time? What's the mom doing? She's just, like, letting this happen? Yeah. Anyways, couldn't find a reason besides um, just her being too afraid of her husband saying anything. I could see that. Maybe he abused her, too. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. willing to do it to his daughter. I'm sure he abuses his wife. Yeah, sure. So one source said that Sheila spoke to a school counselor, but I'm not 100% certain. That was only one source. And the word was going to get out eventually because Sheila became pregnant with Ronald's baby. Oh, my gosh. So at the time, the family was living in New Mexico. And when Ronald got wind that the authorities knew of the abuse and the pregnancy, he picked up his family, and that's when they settled in a spot in Alabama that they dubbed as Mockingbird Hill. Of course they went to Alabama. (laughs) It just makes sense. It's all coming together. (laughs) (laughs) So Sheila was able to escape her disgusting father with her daughter slash sister and marry a wonderful husband who understood the situation and they just, they moved on and just were able to escape. So Ronald later sent a letter to Sheila saying... You have destroyed me, and you have destroyed my trust in you. I will see you in hell. On Mockingbird Hill, Ronald was obsessed with making sure he and his family had plenty of privacy. He built a 10-foot tall fence that covered the entire 13-acre property. No one was allowed in, and certainly not allowed out. That's right. His own wife and kids were never allowed to leave this compound he built. To make up for it, he wanted to give them a little bit more space in the home. So to do that, he... (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing because it's such a silly idea. He took two mobile homes, cut the sides off both of them, and then just squished them together, put them together. Oh, yeah. That'll fix them. Right. So he's like doubled up on the space of their home. Like, you're welcome, family. Be grateful for the space I built. Yeah. So nice of him, right? So he was so controlling that even... Poor Becky uh, didn't know how to drive a car. Like, he wouldn't let her learn how to drive a car. He ran his household like an army base. If the kids weren't sleeping, they were doing chores, and one of those chores would be to dig massive holes that would later become cesspits, because Ronald weirdly refused to have indoor plumbing installed. They would also move gravel from one spot to another spot, just because... He wouldn't exactly explain why, but he would just make them do that. Never let them know your next move is basically (laughs) what he's doing. Yikes. (laughs) Um, He would, so they would clean the house inside and out. And then once they were done, he would uh, demand that they do it again. And I don't know what his plan was behind that. Probably just a thing to keep them busy. I think a lot of people, um, at least in some of these stories I've looked up, are overly controlling to test how far people are willing to go for them. Yeah, that's fair. I could see that. Yeah. Um, Also, keep in mind, so even though, um, like, his wife and kids weren't allowed to leave, they actually were allowed to go to school, but Ronald made sure they they got on the bus and they got home on the bus, off the bus, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
so that they could get at least a proper education. So they like the kids were like, all right, we're doing chores. I mean, this is just this is just how we live. This is just how like people, other families live as well, right? So uh, while the kids cleaned the house and everything, Ronald would kick back and relax on the couch with a beer in one hand and watch television for hours on end. What a great dad. Wonderful. Wonderful. Poor Becky was physically abused almost every day. Probably thinking, wait, why didn't she leave? She simply was just too afraid, and she also didn't want to report any of the abuse as well. Once again, too afraid. However, when she had the opportunity, Becky would stash as much money as she could away so that she could pay for someone to come get them. Once again, she can't drive. She doesn't know how. Right. And they had one car, but Ronald had the car because he would drive to work and back. By this time, their two oldest kids had moved out and had families on their own. Um, But they knew the abuse that was happening in that household, and so they tried to, you know, communicate with the mom to, like, help get her out, and she would, like, write them letters about what's going on, and she had to do all this in secret so that Ronald didn't know. Imagine, like, living under constant stress like that. Right. Just, like, worried you're going to get caught. Yeah. And once again, Ronald just, he forbade, like, any communication from uh, the two eldest because he felt like he was betrayed for them moving, especially by Sheila. Because when she left, you have to remember, he took their their incest baby. <laughs> you know? So creepy. Sorry for the weird noise, but it is disgusting. So, now it is December 22nd, 1987. Christmas time was here. The kids were at school enjoying the festivities and were anxious to get home and enjoy the time off for the holiday. Ronald, on the other hand, snapped and quit his job. The first thing he did after leaving his work was drive to his local Walmart and buy a 22 caliber handgun. Something in Ronald was not right, and little did his family know This was their last days. After Walmart, he drove straight home. Becky was there waiting for him, probably knitting, wrapping presents, watching TV, just enjoying herself in the Christmas time, when all of a sudden, Ronald attacked her from behind with a hammer. He bludgeoned her until she was unrecognizable. Their eldest son, Gene, was visiting and in a different room playing with his three-year-old daughter, Barbara. Hearing his mother's cries for help, He came running in to help her. Unfortunately, Ronald got the best of him and beat him down just like he did his wife. To finish the job, he shot them both twice with the purchase handgun and threw their lifeless bodies in the cesspits his younger children had previously dug. (gasps) Okay. It's one thing to kill someone, but to also dispose of them like that? Yeah. What is this guy's problem? No one could be left alive so he strangled little Barbara and laid her next to her father in the same pit. Now that that was over, Ronald grabbed a beer from the fridge, took a seat in his Lazy Boy, kicked his feet up, and waited for the rest of the younger children to come home for Christmas. Oh, no. Upon arriving home, Ronald told the, the four children, Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky, that he had some early Christmas gifts to give them. But there was a catch. They had to go out back and receive each gift one by one. 
Filled with excitement and happiness that their father had finally done something nice for them, they lined up and waited for their names to be called. The kids sat there and heard their dad from outside call, Loretta, you're up first. Come outside. Excited, Loretta went out the back door. A few minutes later, the rest of the kids heard their names called one by one. Finally, when all of her siblings had received their special surprise Christmas gifts, it was Rebecca's turn. When she walked outside, she was greeted by Ronald, but instead of a gift, he lunged at her with a rope, strangling her, and forced Rebecca's head into a rain barrel where she eventually succumbed and passed away. Ronald had strangled and drowned his four younger children. With four new bodies to hide, he quickly threw each one into the other cesspit that was empty. So four days later on the 26th, their remaining children had arrived for the festivities. So apparently, uh, Becky wanted everyone home for Christmas. And Sheila and Billy, like knowing what was happening with the family, you know, they decided, they're like, you know what, okay, dad's kind of a dick, but we'll go home for mom. First, it was Billy, accompanied by his lovely wife, Renata, and their 20-month-old son, Trey. As soon as they opened the door, Ronald was standing there and waiting. When they looked up, all they saw was Ronald and a barrel staring back at them. Ronald shot and killed Billy and Renata, then took Trey, strangled, and drowned him. Ah, I hate this guy. He's the worst. Sheila, her husband, Dennis, Sheila and Ronald's um, incest child, which is actually named Sylvia, and their 20-month-old son, Michael, arrived to the home. So the four of them. Once again, standing behind the door, Ronald shot and killed the parents and strangled the two children. They never stood a fighting chance. Now this is where it's like a horror movie. Ronald decided to grab all the bodies of his murdered family members and prop them up in his living room as if they all came over to, to the house to watch a Christmas movie. No. No. He covered the bodies in coats and tablecloths to, in a, in a way, like, preserve them. Right? Okay. I couldn't find the reasoning, um, but he left them like that for days. Uh, Ronald would watch TV with a beer in his hand for hours on end while surrounded by the dead bodies. After consideration, he left Trey and Michael in a parked car at the end of the driveway. I have a feeling that he had some type of, like, dislike for them, but I'm not sure why. Um, but it's disgusting and it's horrifying. Also, weird fact, for some strange reason, he soaked the bodies in kerosene. He believed that it would stop the smell coming out of the ground and attracting people and uh, animals or curious critters uh, when they were inside the cesspits. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if it works like that. I don't think so. Now that he had taken care of his family, Ronald felt like he had some unfinished business. On the 28th of December, Ronald drove back to the same Walmart and purchased another firearm to aid in his next attacks. He hopped in his car and drove to a local law office known quite well in their town. This doesn't come as a surprise, but Ronald was not faithful to Rebecca. He was infatuated with younger women and would hit on them as much as he could. One of those young women was Kathy Cribbins Kendrick. Ronald was obsessed with her. When I say obsessed, I I mean obsessed. He would stalk her. He would wait for her to leave work, like offer to walk her to her car. He would um, visit her office with flowers all the time and just 
pretty much just always trying and trying and trying to get a date out of her. So, Kathy, she was a smart girl. She knew he was married. Um, I'm going to guess he was much older than her. And she uh, she denied any attempt from him. Um, this infuriated him. So upon arriving at the law office of where Kathy was the secretary, Ronald shot and killed her. The job Ronald had just quit a few days earlier, where he was a cashier at the local Sinclair Mini Mart. Um, it sounds like his boss didn't really like him. And so I'm guessing they had a ton of contention. And his boss's name was Russell Taylor. After he killed Kathy, he drove to an oil company office that Russell owned and just open fired. Russell was hit, but only injured. He survived. Another office worker, James David Chaffin, who was a complete stranger, didn't know him at all, was hit and unfortunately passed away. While running out of the office, Ronald noticed another worker hiding and shot in their direction, but luckily that shot missed. Not only did he not like his boss, but it sounds like he hated everyone he worked with at the Mini Mart. So that was his next stop. Upon arrival, he shot and wounded two more previous co-workers that he worked with. To finish his insane murder spree, his final stop was at the office of the Woodland Motor Freight Company. There he shot his former boss twice, but luckily she survived the attack. Thinking she was dead, he walked into another room, pointed the gun at another worker, and demanded they call the police. When the police arrived on scene, Ronald gave up without a fight. He simply gave them the firearm and held his arms out so they could slap handcuffs on him. Quickly, authorities were able to find out that Ronald was completely sane. Because of this, he was able to go to trial, but in reality, he knew what he had done and wanted the death penalty. He was first brought to trial for the murders of Kathy Kendrick and James Chaffin. He was found guilty and given the death sentence by lethal injection. Next, he was found guilty of murdering his entire family. He was also given the death sentence by lethal injection for those murders. While they were reading out the verdict, Ronald lunged for and assaulted the prosecutor, John Bynum. Ronald was lunging to grab John's gun. Uh, Men quickly jumped on on Ronald and were able to hold him down until they were able to haul him away to a holding cell. He refused to appeal his death sentence, stating, To those who oppose the death penalty... In my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. The Arkansas governor, known famously, as everyone knows, Bill Clinton, signed his execution warrant, and on June 25, 1990, Ronald Gene Simmons died by lethal injection. None of his surviving relatives claimed the body, and it was buried in an unknown grave. Good. So, uh, just to finish off the story... A band named Macabre wrote a song about Simmons and the murders he committed. The song is called Holidays of Horror, if you would like to look it up, and the lyrics go as follows. Simmons went crazy, murdered 16, 14 of them family, he killed them for the holidays. Merry Christmas, he gunned his family down. His bullets were their presents, dead relatives all around. Happy New Year, one they won't be here to see. It's the holiday of horror because of Ronald Gene Simmons. He built a wall around his trailer home so the neighbors would leave him alone, and he didn't want them to see how he abused his family. Merry Christmas. He gunned his family down. His bullets were their presents. 
dead relatives all around. Happy New Year. One they won't be here to see. It's the holiday of horror because of Ron Gene Simmons. I hope no one ever has to go through what the Simmons family <laughs> had to endure on Christmas, but I want to wish everyone a very Merry Christmas from the Spooky Soup Podcast. <laughs> that story was a lot. <laughs> Psychopath. Psychopath. Sorry, I just want to point out that I misspoke. It wasn't the two oldest that moved out. It was um, Sheila and then one of the brothers. So bec- Okay. Right. So just to... Just to correct myself. So, anyways, there you go. There's a story of Christmas from Hell. I should have titled it. Uh, I should have titled it "The Holidays of Horror," as the song <laughs> title is. <laughs> we can always add that. In the sure. Yeah. Show notes. <laughs> yeah. Wink, wink. Okay. There you oh go. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm reeling from that. That was intense. Because not only do we have the abuse. Um, disgusting abuse from a father on his own family. Then we have the isolation. Then we have the murders and then the murder spree and the purchase of the firearms to commit these murders. And then I can't even imagine being like a first responder happening upon the scenes. Like I'm done with my job at that point. I'm not going back. Yeah. For me, the most twisted part of everything is when he, um, laid out the bodies in the family room and just chilled next to him like it was just another day. But they were all dead. Have you seen the house that Jack built? No. No, I haven't. But I know where you're going with this. I think it's probably based on this dude, part of it. There might be. I'll look it up and see. But because yeah, strange. Yeah. Like the whole point of the movie is he's a serial killer. And it's like his mind is narrating the movie, so it's from his perspective. But the whole point is he wants to build a house, but he just keeps killing people and storing them in a freezer and, like, taking photos with them. And then you realize at the end of the movie, the house he's been building in his mind, like out of plywood and all that, is actually out of these frozen bodies, and he's arranged them to look like a house. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, that, that, that reminds make, me of it. That makes more sense because I just Googled it while you're saying that, and it says that it was the character was based off of Ted Bundy, but the story is based off of Dante's Inferno. Oh, yeah. So there you go. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, hope you guys uh, are spooked, and once again, I hope you have a uh, very Merry Christmas. Um, do you have anything else? That's it for me. I hope everyone stays jolly and spooked. All at the same time. All at the same time. (laughs) All right, guys. (laughs) We'll scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.